A little over um, a week ago or so, Kathy and I were FaceTiming with a, a pastor and his wife. They had been laboring away in this uh, area for a number of years, 15 some odd years or more, and um, just an amazing amount of ministry in a, one of the tougher places uh, in the world, and uh, they were leaving. They had finally waved the white flag after uh, uh, a long period of time, I, I want to say a year to 18 months. Uh, what happened is that there was an incident in the church in which uh, the pastor was accused of something, uh, and through this 18-month period, uh, there was all kinds of internal investigations and external inv investigations by his denomination and other other things going on, and um, anyway, in the process, he was continued to be vindicated, but this uh, uh, situation would not resolve itself uh, to the point to where they just, they're, they're, they were just drained of their spirit, and they had to relocate, um, and uh, there's a lot more to that story, but uh, I wish I could tell you that uh, this tragedy, and it is, is unusual, but over the last uh, about 18 months as well, I've been engaged with another pastor here in town who's been uh, working with an elder on his team trying to resolve this, this uh, dynamic on their elder team. They brought in outside help to try to resolve this. Uh, and and all, after all this time, it still cannot be resolved. And uh, this, there still remains this just... Uh, almost unbearable difficulty sometime by the pastor living with us. Not too long ago, uh, a church uh, incorporated Kathy's ministry into their church scenario where someone in the church has had a problem with leadership, and uh, that church has, been, has spent uh, hours and hours. Every single person on this leadership team has spent hours and hours with this one individual trying to reconcile the situation. This heartache and hypocrisy of something happening where two individuals or a group of individuals cannot reconcile, cannot somehow find a way for peace to happen and to move on. And, and interestingly, it's happening in the very place on this planet where we would think if we can find peace anywhere, it's got to be with people who belong to the Prince of Peace. We were only here for about a year, so this was probably maybe a little over 10 years ago, when we brought in a ministry to this church called Peacemakers. We loved peacemakers before we got here. Uh, we probably need to bring it back again, not because there's a problem in this church, but, uh, but the theme of peacemakers is that there is this tendency to either be a peace breaker, you're not really making peace, you're just bullying, you just have such a strong opinion, you, you, have, you know how to bully and manipulate people into being quiet. You're not actually making peace, you're breaking peace. But then on the other side, there are peace fakers, people who are too terrified to say what needs to be said out of fear that they'll hurt someone's feelings or maybe lose their relationship. And terrified is not 
an overstatement. What's missing in all of these situations? What is missing in all of these situations? I'll tell you what's missing. We're going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about it all the way through till Christmas Sunday. And at the rate I'm going, it'll probably go past that. (laughs) Matt already introduced it to us last week when he talked about Moses. I want to wring this topic dry. Until the Jesus in us is so stunningly real among us that we can say there's something radically different about us than everybody else in the world. So, we've come to that place in Philippians where this theme is dead center. Philippians chapter 2. But, in order to see why this theme is so important, I'm going to need to do some review of Philippians. I know I've only gotten through one chapter. There's four chapters here, and you're doing a review already. Yes, yes, you'll see why in a minute. But before I do the review, I really need to do something else this morning. I need to pray. So let's do that. Father, I will uh, confess to you... (laughs) And to everyone else this morning, that this is a challenging topic. And uh, I sense the evil one pressing down and not wanting us to go here. But you clearly want us to go here. And I have found such richness in being in this place in Philippians 2. So would you graciously and wonderfully allow others to experience that richness as well. For the sake of the humblest one of all, our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, Philippians, let's talk a little bit about where we've been. This little church in this little teeny place called Philippi, of uh, this Roman colony, back way long ago when the New Testament was written, uh, it's a letter written to this group of young believers. The church is only six years old. It's being written by this guy named the Apostle Paul. Apostle is just a fancy word for an authorized messenger of Jesus. They have established leaders there. They're struggling with poverty. This is a very uh, low, low income church. Uh, they're also experiencing outside opposition because they're, they're being accused of being treasonous because they don't have loyalty to Caesar like they should. Their, their, their loyalty is exclusively to another king. Uh, named Jesus. And as a result of that, they're also having disunity on the inside. And slowly there's this poisonous spirit of self-seeking that's leaking into the church and draining their perseverance. Now, there are key words in the book of Philippians. The word joy shows up all over the place. It gets the most attention, even though it's not the most frequent word, Uh, But it gets the most attention. We'll see why in a moment. There's also this word called think, different forms of it, uh, kind of a mindset that's being communicated in this book. There's also the word gospel is a key word that shows up in critical places. But the word that shows up the most is being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ, to be a believer? And then there's a couple places where we're at right now where these two ideas, though they're not 
frequent in words, they're very important in how they get fitted into this book, the idea of suffering and the idea of unity. So where we find ourselves right now, we've just come through the end of chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, where Paul sort of sets out the ideal, the goal of what should be true of all churches. In fact, uh, our theme verse, you could say, is taken from Philippians 1, 27, our vision verse or vision statement for uh, the church. And, uh, and he's, he's, uh, they've been very concerned about Paul being in prison and after assuring him that his hard circumstances, his hard circumstances have not affected what really matters in life, which is the advance of the kingdom. So after he's talking about his hard circumstances, he now pivots to the Philippians in this section of 127 through um, 30. And uh, here he's, uh, he he's going to talk to them about uh, the, he's driving them to the centerpiece in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We could almost say that everything he's been saying has been like water flowing downhill, draining into this one spot. These 11 verses of chapter 2, where joy comes together, think comes together, the gospel comes together, uh, in Christ comes together, suffering and unity, they all coalesce into this one place. And then if you look back for just a moment, it's not the, the passage isn't in your bulletin, but if you have a Bible, Philippians 1, 27 and 28, he says, uh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So at the very, very last idea of, of 27, striving, very first idea uh, in 28, not being frightened. So striving without retreating, striving without being frightened. That's kind of what he's starting to draw attention to here. And then notice this, if you're doing that at the end of 27, if you're striving for the gospel and not retreating because of your opponents, verse 28, guess what it is, verse 28, it's a sign. It's a sign not only to your opponents that they're under judgment, it's a sign to you that you belong to Jesus. Let me just put it all together. The sign that you belong to Jesus is this presence of joy, this persevering joy, striving, not being frightened, just continuing on despite opposition, striving. That's this idea of persevering joy that's here. And see, the reason joy is mentioned so much in Philippians is because it's fading, or more specifically, unity is breaking down. Unity is breaking down which is an indication when joy is fading, it means unity is breaking down. And if unity is breaking down, it's because of what's missing. And that's what this whole passage is all about. So let me put it all together in a nice little wonderful illustration here you've seen before if you were here those first couple of weeks of Philippians. But think of the sun. The sun is, has this massive gravitational pull. And it pulls together the hydrogen and helium. And it, the gravitation is so intense. 
in uniting these two elements that it actually creates a nuclear reaction that radiates out and gives life to you and I. And right at the center of that is humility. That's what we're going to be talking about. You cannot have unity without humility, and you can't have joy without unity. And that's what this humility is. It is this strong, intense, gravitational pull on the believer that creates unity around the gospel. And as we are pulled together as a people around the gospel, we explode out in radiating joy and this persevering joy to the world. And so as we step into these verses here this morning, and we won't get very far, and I won't apologize for that either, uh, I want to I draw your attention to one of the things that he says right off the bat. It's really the title of the message this week, that Christ's humility is our humility. It's an unusual thing that Paul does here, the writer of Philippians, when he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, now, if you're reading Philippians at all and you've come across this, I have to think that the seventh or eighth time you've read Philippians 2, it's maybe occurred to you that that's a strange way to say that. For example, if I asked you the question, is there any encouragement in Christ? Would you answer, ah, let me think about that for a minute. It, of course you would say yes, right? So in, it, Paul could have done this. He could have said, look, you guys, quit being so disunified. There's encouragement in Christ. There's comfort. Now get it together. But that's not the tone at all. It's brilliant what he does. I mean, these people love Paul. They, they, they're burdened that he's in prison. He's gentle with them, but he's also direct with them. He's reminding them that they're in Christ. And he's saying, look... There's encouragement in Christ. There's comfort from love. There's participation in the Spirit. And then notice the bookend of this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Humility is not something we have to go out and manufacture. It's already in us. We just have to activate it. This is, this is what Christ gave you when he entered into you. He gave you all these things. He brought all these things with him, all of this encouragement. And, um, and so we, we see this way of speaking where he's reminding them of who they are in Christ. He could have said like 2 Corinthians 5.17 where it's not in the if statement. He could have said, uh, anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. The old things have passed away. That's a more definitive way of saying it. But here he's inviting them in, reminding them in a very gentle way of who they are. And then if you look farther down in Philippians 2, whether it's in your bulletin or your Bible, look at verse 7. Jesus becomes the supreme example of this whole concept of humility. And we'll talk about that more in the future. But notice he made himself nothing. Then what did he do? He took the form of a servant. He took the form of of a servant. And I'm already jumping ahead. I just realized I did that. Why did he do that, Rick? Okay, never mind. There's one thing I want you to know. Let's back up for a minute. Uh, one of the things that struck me about these verses as I was hovering over them is that here are 11 verses about humility, but there's hardly a mention of how you do humility. 
There's hardly a mention of how you practice humility. There is some, by the way, here's a little preview, a trailer of uh, the upcoming movie. Verses 6 and 8 tell us how to activate the humility that's already in us. So if you want to hover over those, verses 6 and 8 tell us how to activate it. But what I find so interesting here is that humility in verses 1 through 11 Paul spends more time defining humility than he does how to practice it. And I wonder why that is. Why spend more time defining humility than telling us how to practice it? So here's my, here's my best answers for that. I think when we can define humility, we can detect its counterfeit, pride. And we can also see the worth and wonder of humility so greatly that we crave it over all other biblical traits. I don't think it's just because I'm in the book of Philippians. Maybe it is. But if I had to push a button right now and have only one trait from God in its purest form, it would not be love. It would not be holiness. It would not be grace. It would not be any of those things. It wouldn't be hope. It wouldn't be faith. It would be humility. I think that's how deep that core issue is that affects all of those other traits. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is such a centerpiece here in this text. And one of, the, one of the things that should be straightforward from this text, I think any third grader could get this, one of the definitions of humility is its other-centeredness. Again, not, no rocket science there. You could probably figure that out. Again, the words encouragement, comfort, uh, affection, sympathy, they're just overlapping ways of talking about other-centeredness. And again, back to, this is where I was a minute ago, uh, the other-centeredness is pictured in Jesus, who took the form of a servant. There's an old theological word. I suspect many of you have heard of it before. It's called incarnation. It, it comes from carna, as in carnivore, uh, as, uh, as in uh, flesh. Uh, and uh, it's the idea of God. Jesus took on our body. He took on who we are. He became one of us. That's the whole idea here. And maybe the way to say other-centeredness best is it's getting in the skin of another. Getting in the skin of another. Let me give you a simple example. We just went on a vacation down to North Carolina and drove in that Thanksgiving traffic uh, down, but even more so on the way back, the traffic was better. Uh, but I noticed a certain pattern, you know, when there's construction and there's two lanes going into one, uh, and we all get in one lane, and then there's that person who just decides, yeah... <laughs> Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Or that's one scene. The other scene is, you know, you're driving along and someone is just determined to find every space they can, passing on the right or left. And uh, at one point, I called down curses on a person. Uh, and Kathy can testify to that. I literally prayed to God, God, would you bring judgment on this person right now? It seemed right at the moment. <laughs> A few minutes later, uh, and by the way, that's not an example to repeat. That's, um, uh, it just felt like that was such a right moment for justice. Um, 
But I'm reminded in those, what, what corrects me so quickly in those moments is I stop and think, what would it be like to be in their skin, even if what they're doing is abominable? How did they get to that place? I mean, aren't we a whole lot worse than that driver before the God who brought us into existence? But he didn't dismiss us. He didn't distance himself from us because we were hopeless to change. He didn't close the books on us. He took on our skin. He became one of us. And he didn't just become one of us as a 33-year-old man do his mission in a year and a half and he was out of here. He was a baby. And he spent a long time with us before he even opened his mouth to us. He observed us. He had compassion on us. Behind our screwed upness, he saw how we got there. And his first words to us were not dismissal, they were invitation. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is affection, since there is sympathy, be a conduit of that to others. That's this other-centeredness here. But it's not just other-centeredness, it's also a gospel-focused other-centeredness. And this is very, very important to distinguish this from other things in the world that look like humility but are not. So look back at chapter 1, verse 27. I just read that earlier. Um, again, this idea that we are uh, believers, our group of people gathered together to do what? Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what it says in verse 27. Then notice down in 29 and 30. Not only has it been granted to you, not only has, have you been gifted for the sake of Christ to believe in him, but guess what? You've also been blessed with the ability to suffer for Christ as well. Involved in, verse 30, the same conflict that Paul's involved in. In other words, the focus of humility in the book of Philippians is not how you behave outside of church, but how you behave inside of church with one another. Because if it can happen here, it can happen out there in the real sense of what it means. And that focus is this. It's to remind ourselves that we are involved in something supremely important here. Something that the minute I walk through that threshold, I lay aside my preferences, my opinions. I, none of those are going to matter more than the most important thing that matters, which is the kingdom of God. We are citizens, Paul says, of a superior nation. That's really the language of verse 27. Walk worthy of the gospel. Remember, you're part of a superior nation. Do you know that we're involved in a mission of overthrowing every existing government on this planet? Seriously. Do you know that we belong to the only one who can promise on his government? All the others make promises that they can't deliver. We belong to the only one who has made a promise, and he is right now delivering on it. We are not just ordinary people in a voluntary organization coming to do our religious thing. We are part of an organized, quiet revolution to overthrow this planet. Plain and simple. That's what I mean by this other-centeredness that is gospel-focused. And that's why 
it's also radically unnatural. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time on this little phrase in Philippians 2. Before he talks about what humility is, he defines what it's not. Verse 3, Philippians 2, do nothing from rivalry. Another version is selfish ambition or conceit. This is the opposite. In a sense, in a word, this is pride. And if we can identify pride, I think we can understand how radically unnatural humility is. It's not, humility is not scheduled on selfishness. All right, this week, I am really going to love my neighbor. This week, I am really going to put it on my little to-do list, and I'm, I am going to go after it. It's not paying it forward kindness, by the way. That's nice, but that's not humility. And humility is also not, you know, ethnic hospitality. And I've heard it said many times, you know, oh, that particular nation, they're, they're so much more humble than we are in, Amer- in America. They're, you know, they're... they're they open their doors to strangers. They have this high value of hospitality. They're, they're not, they don't dance in the end zone. I mean, these are humble people. They're not. That's just a cultural thing. Humility without Christ is disguised pride. Humility without Christ is disguised pride. And that's why I think it's so important that he, he, he says here, do nothing, do nothing out of, from rivalry or conceit. That is the most natural thing in the human being. That is the most natural thing in the human being. Jonathan Edwards, the earliest uh, early American preacher, not earliest, <laughs> said, pride is the worst viper in the heart. It is the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. And this is where I really agree with him. It is the most difficult sin to root out of the human heart. Pride has many faces and it has a thousand disguises. Let me just tell you a few. Matt did a good job last week of telling you some others, but I'll just keep adding to it. Let's say you're confident that you're right about something. I'm not talking about just arrogant confidence here. I'm just talking about you've thought about something. I don't care what it's about, but you're pretty, you're pretty confident you're right about something. Be super careful. According to 1 Corinthians 8, that kind of knowledge, which is a gift from the Lord, if you really are thinking clearly and right, that kind of knowledge has a huge tendency to puff you up. And to close off your heart and to close off your brain. And when it does, you start thinking you're righter than you really think you are. Are you hurt? Are you've been disrespected repeatedly? Are you've been unfairly treated? That creates a wound in you. But here's the thing about pride. Pride leverages that wound. Oh, man, it just loves to, you just hover over that wound. I know, because I've had one of those wounds. You hover over that wound, and you begin to justify a kind of superiority over the person who wounded you, a sort of rationalized, justified vengeance. And it suffocates any possibility of real forgiveness ever growing in your heart. You like to help others. 
You like to help people in need. You're generous. Pride has a way of making you feel good when you do that. That's different than just a, a normal goodness. And you know what? Without realizing it, in that doing good to others, you have no idea how you're making them feel so inferior. Even if you don't mean to. That's just the nature of pride. It's such a diabolic thing. We care what we're like in the eyes of others. We do. I, I don't, if one of you told me you didn't, I would tell you to your face, you are deceiving yourself. Every one of us cares with a certain group of people. It matters to us what they think of us. And as a result, they affect things like what we drive. I know for some of you that doesn't, that's not the case for me, it does. Um, it affects what you do for a living. It affects what you wear. It affects how you school. It affects what you watch. It affects the stories you tell. There are so many ways that we have learned time and time again how to keep the right kind of attention on us and the wrong kind of attention off of us. Are you starting to get heated up a little bit? Are you starting to feel a little bit of the piercing here? Are you starting to hate pride? Well, I'm not done yet. C.J. Mahaney, in his book written some time ago, Humility, uh, True Greatness, I like that subtitle, says, this is what we're like naturally. This is what we're like naturally. We're motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency, and we pursue selfish ambition for the pursuit or for the purpose of self-glorification. That's you and me in the mirror. That's you and the me in the mirror, even with Jesus a lot of times. C.S. Lewis says, pride is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And I would say this, pride is the greatest obstruction to the love of Christ in me for others. Pride is the greatest obstruction of the love of Christ in me for others. And you know where I've seen this the most? The one person I've fought with the most in life. She's here. I don't know how many times when we've had tension and I've walked away and my first thoughts are, why can't she see what I see so clearly about her? I suspect she may be thinking the same thing, but she's better than me in that, I'm sure. And then it kind of hits me, usually sometimes not till the next morning. You know, if I didn't have any pride in me, I could have taken that. And seen it as the voice of God, drawing attention to something that needs to change in me. It's not about her 90% or my 90% and her 10%. You remember the description of the fool in Proverbs? The fool in Proverbs is what? Wise in his own eyes, right? In a word, the fool, in a word, the, a fool is unconfrontable. 
unconfrontable, quick to defend, to dismiss, to deflect, and easily offended. And once offended, the fool is forever offended. I want you to look at something as we transition here. First uh, Peter chapter 5, the passage that Jason read for us. I don't want to leave us just having pride exposed. I want pride to get covered by the grace of God. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Very briefly here. I'm, we're jumping into the middle of this passage, but I think it's fair to say, just from what I'm showing you, that this is a passage about humility. It's mentioned three times in just a few verses. And uh, after transitioning from elders to younger people, we, we get this statement to everybody, not just to the younger ones in verse 5, but all of you clothe yourselves head to toe, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Please hear that as a promise, not just a statement about God. See it as a promise, a hope-giving promise. Then he goes on to talk about um, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And just from these two verses, verses 5 and 6, there are two things that help us understand humility better and even begin to activate humility. One is humility is like submission. Humility is constantly resubmitting yourself to whatever God wants. He gets to call the shots. Because what was the first sin of our first parents? Independence from God. And so in humility, we're always returning to dependence upon God. We're doing the exact opposite maneuver of our first parents who broke away from God. And by the way, when you break away from God, the problem with independence is God no longer is exalting you. So guess what? You have to exalt you. You get that? When you break away from God, who gets to choose, that's the other thing here, you submit, and then in verse 6, you let God exalt you when and how and if he wants to. But when you break away from God and you're on your own, you're in a world where if you don't self-exalt yourself, you're going to get crushed. So that's what humility is, submitting to whatever God's providence is, whatever God is doing and that's what keeps us from being anxious. Verse 7, casting all your anxiety upon him. We don't need to control our environment because we're submitted to the one who does. Humility is this state of yielded dependency, wanting God's exaltation over mine. And here's what's interesting as the passage goes on to tell us. Uh, there's a devil roaming around, resist him, firm in your faith. Verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, God will confirm all of this. What humility does is it increases our capacity for suffering. It increases our capacity for suffering. It increases our ability to resist the devil so that more and more of our life is anchored in what the devil can't touch. That's the beauty and wonder of humility. Now, I want to talk a minute here about, as we come to the table this morning, about how this idea of Christ's humility is your humility. 
But first, let's do a little housekeeping here. Let's let the kids come in, those, the people doing worship come forward, the people serving communion coming forward. As always, particularly if you're visiting with us today, this table is open to you if you know Jesus as your Savior and as your King. This, this is the table where we can come and know that our, all the pride that we're discovering in our heart, it's already been paid for. It's already been covered. Now, if you're here today and that's not the case, you're uncertain about whether Christ is your Savior and King, then I would encourage you to just use this moment, stay in your seat. The rest of you can come forward up through the center aisle here, and then I'll lead us all in a moment as we take bread and cup. But for those of you who might just use this moment to sit and recognize, perhaps this is a moment, a day for you when that pride has been unveiled some more. Well, I have a great promise for you, and I have a great promise for everybody else in this room. This is the Advent Sunday where promise is our theme. And the promise already in Philippians 2 is that if you're in Christ, you're in humility. His humility is your humility. It just needs to be activated by a choice. It's just like putting hot water uh, over a tea bag. It activates the tea bag, and that's what we're going to learn about in the weeks to come, how this gets activated. And that choice begins with an old, uh, the words of an old hymn written almost 300 years ago by Isaac Watts, the guy who gave us joy to the Lord, also wrote a hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Remember what he said? When, those of you who know that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, it causes me to pour contempt on my pride. When I survey the cross, my pride is exposed and it's disgusting. And there's the blood of Christ ready to wash it away. So as you come this morning, I would encourage you to remember this amazing statement of God's power, a promise on the Advent Sunday of promise, a promise given to a very, 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 Dr. Seussish, proud man. His name was Nebuchadnezzar, and he says this in Daniel 4.37. I'll read it. You take a moment, reflect on this morning, and then Dennis will come and lead us into our communion. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, like myself, Nebuchadnezzar says, he is able to humble. That is one of the best promises in all of the Bible. Let's take a moment and think on that.